Welcome to Season 3, Episode 11 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining you today is Brendan Riley. Brendan is a writer and translator. His new translation of Antagony is out now through Dalkey Archive Press. Welcome to the show, Brendan. Thank you. It's nice to be here. How's life in San Diego? Um, it's good. We're having a little bit of cold weather and rain, which is a nice break. It's usually quite hot most of the year here, so uh, it's nice. Uh, it's good. And, uh, you know, we're heading into the holiday season, so uh, it's good. Excellent. Before we talk about all your literary work, you also have a full-time day job. Do you want to tell us about your um, teaching? Uh, I'm a high school English teacher, and uh, my current assignment is to teach 10th and 11th grade English. So I teach a survey class of pretty much classic works of English, mostly English literature, but some American and some world literature too, and that's to 10th graders. Uh, Right now they're reading some Chaucer. and before that, it was uh, we did some Beowulf and uh, read some excerpts from Samuel Pepys' diary. So just standard uh, works that you'd find in a survey course. Um, and then I teach two classes of composition to 11th graders uh, to different sections. So um, we, one of them is uh, focused on contemporary writers, uh, and it's it's primarily um, a writing practicum or workshop more than analysis or literary history but of course all those things always work in there and then the other one is um <clears throat> is a, a a more advanced uh english language and composition so we get more into the nuts and bolts of uh, of rhetoric and that interesting okay your work as a translator you translated works by carlos fuentes alvaro enrique um great solo obviously we're going to talk about how do you end up becoming a translator uh, long story, uh, started when I was young, uh, in my household, uh, my guardians both did translation, uh, for a time, um, <clears throat> my, uh, my oldest brother and his wife, uh, were English teachers in Italy, in the Friuli back in the, in the early to mid seventies. And so they brought the, their experiences, uh, living in Italy and speaking the language into our house, um. And my brother did some commercial translation, just just you know, uh, any any kind of jobs. I remember one day he was translating a uh, a catalog of lawnmower parts and recording the translation into a tape recorder. But my sister-in-law, um, she did some um, translations of Friulan folk poetry, um, some of the first that were translated into English, uh, along with a, a scholar named Patrick Knight and. Uh, so they they had a book that came out called Vilotis dal Friul, Friulan Folk Poetry, and that came out in, uh, it was published in Udine, Italy in 1976. So having that that conversation um, and uh, the, the cultural background and also a lot of friends and visitors in the house, that just made it seem to me that, you know, being bilingual or multilingual was a natural thing. So when I started studying Spanish in school, it just uh, I felt very comfortable with that. And I studied in uh, high school, a little bit in college. And then after graduate school, I moved to, uh, I had a yearning to become proficient more than just out of a textbook. So I moved to Barcelona after I got my MA and spent two years 
teaching English and businesses and companies there and a few language schools. Uh, I met my wife there. And so since then, I've had, uh, you know, a family association with with Barcelona. Wow. Uh, and, and when I lived there, I got um, someone said, hey, you know, you need some extra money and uh, they need translators for the uh, the Universal Expo 92, which was being held in Sevilla. And uh, I ended up translating a, a catalog for an exhibition, basically descriptions of different artifacts on display. And that's, that's, and uh, I got paid for it. And so that, uh, that was my foot in the door. Wow. And um, with that, how did you get into literary translations? <clears throat> um, so uh, after I moved back to California and I was teaching high school, um, teachers are always encouraged to, further their education. And I saw that there was um, a new program in translation studies being offered through the UC Berkeley extension. This was, this was 20 years ago or so around, <clears throat> around the, around 2000, around the turn of the century. Um, and uh, it seemed like a great way to keep studying um, and, uh, you know, advance professionally. So um, I did that for two years and I got a certificate in translation studies. And one of the requirements for that was to do an internship um, in a company. And that proved, as far as the program logistics, that wasn't practical for everybody. So they ended up offering another alternative that you could do. You could do some literary translation if that was your chosen specialty. So uh, I ended up working with a professor in the Bay Area and translating uh, a novel Um no, sorry. It was a it was a book of poems, uh, sort of like a, a, a narrative and poetry, um, and that's that's how I got my start doing that, doing like a full a full blown book uh, translation project, um, and that's how I got started. And then um, a couple of years later, I was at the um, the Alta conference down in uh, in in Pasadena, it's the American Literary Translators Association. And there I learned uh, that Dalkey Archive Press was launching a program of its own through the University of Illinois. And that was um, that was um, with a specialty in uh, practical literary translation, I think is how they were pitching it at the time. So I got involved with that and that led me to doing um, a few different books with Dalkey since I think 2010. Okay, amazing. Well, we'll talk about Antagony um, because that has just come out from Dalkey. The first volume came out several years ago now. I think you were telling me 2017, which you translated. Yes. Do you want to tell us just a bit about the publishing story of this book? Um, sure. Uh, I got involved with this back in... 2012 2013 i had done a few books with dalkey um and i was talking with uh the editor in chief at the time um jeremy davies um and i was talking about what to do next and he said you might be interested in this book that's just coming out um in barcelona uh being published by anagram and it turned out to be the full uh, volume, all four volumes of Antagony in a single volume. And that was the first time um, that that had happened. Um, 
and I read a few reviews of the book and um, having lived in Barcelona, it got me very excited. Uh, I was able to get a copy, a review copy of the novel and uh, started reading it and I was hooked. And so um, I pitched and begged and pleaded to do the translation and luckily the, the lights turned green. And uh, so I got started on this project back in 2013. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the, so the first volume came out, uh, four years later, and then now here we are, uh, it was, it, we went back and forth a few times. It was originally going to be a single volume, just like Anagramma had done that turned out to be, uh, to take, a, you know, it, it's a very challenging book. So, um, it took longer than originally anticipated. So at that point I said, well, maybe we should do it in four volumes the way it had originally been done. Maybe that's going to be more practical, more, more palatable for readers. Uh, so we started with that and went to do, we did the first volume, which is recounting, um, which is the longest of the four by quite a bit. It's, it's almost half of the whole single volume. Um, and then changes came to Dalkey, um, uh, the production started to slow down. And then unfortunately, um, the founder of Dalkey Archive, John O'Brien, passed away two years ago. Um, and so that led to a reset at the press. And so when I started talking with Chad Post about how to continue, um, the second and third books were already in the pipeline. Um, and we were going to go ahead and just continue with doing them individually. Um, and then uh, Chad and Will Evans said, you know, why don't we go back to that original idea and see if we can't do it all in one great big, you know, whopping volume. And so we, we decided to do that and it worked out. <clears throat> one of the challenges with this book in particular, apart from the difficulty, um, as you said, is its length. Do you want to tell us about the, that difficulty with a 1200 page book? Um. Well, there is the, the not not only the length, but the style uh, of the writing, um, especially it, it's most prevalent in the first um, novel of the of the four of the tetralogy. So the uh, Goiti Solo's style in in recounting, which is book one of Antagony, um, is uh it's it's epic it's monumental it's it's uh it's rhetorically daunting um it's normal for sentences to go on 200 300 words or more uh all the time page after page you find sentences like this there are paragraphs that run on for pages uh i think the longest one i encountered is about a 22 page paragraph that goes into the uh the history of catalonia and barcelona so um, that was really a challenge to to work with that syntactically, uh, lexically, and um, it became clear to me pretty early on that you know the the question of how how do you make it um, legible, how do you make it readable for uh, an English language audience that um, has been trained to read short sentences or to write in short sentences. The the only thing I could see was to to honor the original style because that is so much a part of the of the character of the book. Um, but it does 
it's sometimes is like unraveling a real long, uh, complicated knot to get it to read smoothly in English and still make grammatical sense. I mean, that's a, that's a challenge any translator is going to deal with on a, on a sentence to sentence basis. But in the first book, it was, it was quite something. So there were some real, real, um, <laughs> brain twisters in there. The, the style gets, um, more transparent and familiar and maybe commonplace, you might say, as the books progress, because it, um, it, it traces the evolution of this main character, Raul Ferrer Gaminde, and his aspiration to become a novelist. Uh, in the first two books, he's sorting out his life and then sorting out his ideas of what a writer should be and trying to get serious about it. Um, so the first book is, you know, the whole thing has been described as a buildings roman, but I think that's most appropriate for the first book because that deals with his youth and, and um, his coming of age. And then by the second novel, he's decided he's going to be a writer, but he's figuring out what kind of writer he's going to be. And so the second novel is, is um, it's indulgent, it's strange, it's experimental, it's filled with fantasy and a lot of sex and a lot of, uh, it's reflective of, of a sort of a decadent, youthful lifestyle on the Costa Brava, late 60s, early 70s. Um, and, uh, and then things stylistically settle down um and become a bit more plain spoken as the as the novels progress wow <clears throat> in terms of the historical context of this book um it starts off in that period you know around the spanish civil war do you want to tell us a little bit about that historical period that the books uh takes place over um i'll do my best um uh, the book opens with just very early childhood memories from Raul of, of the last days of the Spanish Civil War um, and uh, seeing, you know, he hearing some sort of final combats and cannons going off and guns firing, but then um, the, the triumph of the nationalists, you know, and uh, it, as the as the novel develops one realizes that he's in a family of Catalans who have chosen the side of nationalism and they are Francoists and that's the household he grows up in um but that period in Spanish history from 1936 to 1939 um was decisive both for Spain and Europe um uh sometime, I think it was Carlos Fuente said that you know World War II was rehearsed on the battlefields of Spain um, and Franco's forces received a lot of military aid from Mussolini and Hitler. And so they, they really out, outgunned the Republican forces. Uh, Barcelona was the last city to fall. Um, and, you know, it was a bitter and destructive war. Uh, over a million people died. And then in the years that followed, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of political prisoners died. Um, and Spain was left pretty shattered, and and that was why it was not a primary participant in World War II. It was it was allied with the fascist countries, but there wasn't outright combat because that had already transpired. So, um, the in the novel, the world that that Raúl is growing up in is a uh, is a Barcelona that has been taken over by Francoism and. Uh, there's, there's, you know, an imposition of rigidity and stability. Um, and, and around that is eventually, um, 
uh, a growing uh, political discontent that he becomes aware of uh, as people start to push back uh, against the, the, the fascist rule and the, uh, the, um, the autocracy. Wow. Okay. Do you have a favorite section of the book? Um, there, there are, it's a big book, four books. Um, there, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, the, the section that I mentioned earlier, when it really goes into the history of, of Barcelona and Catalonia, um, that was what really made me, hooked me because, um, having lived in the city and walked the streets for years, uh, and, and having gone back to visit and stay many times, uh, I felt like I was back there and I felt, you know, in a, in a, in a, a part of me thought, you know, this is, this is the book for me. I was made to translate this book. Of course, a lot of people could, uh, but it, it just seemed like uh, it was, it was uh, inviting me in a way. I don't know how that sounds, but it's um, mm. so that, that part of the, of the history of the city really put the hook in me. Um, uh, near the end of the first book, Raul, who has, um, he's, become a communist, uh, although he's not as committed as other communists. And he finds that the, uh, the, the party intrigue is perhaps, um, distasteful to him. He, he finds his commitment waning, uh, and then finds himself betrayed and, uh, denounced and arrested. Um, the interrogations at the police station are brutal as one could expect. And then he's transported off to the Modelo prison, which was an infamous prison in Barcelona. Um, I, I believe it's closed now, but, uh, the chapters in which he, which he spends time in prison and he sort of has a conversion away from politics toward literature. And this, um, this is, uh, true to life for, from Goiti Solo, uh, as, as the story goes, that's how he began writing Antagony when he was in prison on smuggled sheets of toilet paper, uh, writing down his first ideas for the novel. So, those are some great chapters uh, and really give an interesting look inside the, the the politics as well as the religion of the time, because the the prisoners, there's these great scenes where the uh, the prisoners, including a lot of gay men, um, celebrate the Catholic mass fervently inside the um, inside the prison. And there's almost this this temporary equanimity between the guards and the warden and the prisoners as they as the the religion temporarily takes precedence on a Sunday. So beautifully written chapters. I really you know in the first book those are some standouts. This book has been compared to people like Joyce and Proust. Um, do you want to I guess give us your perspective? Do you have like kind of any authors you think this book might be similar to? Um, well, I can't speak for Proust. I'm, I don't know Proust. Uh, he's, he's on my list of authors to read and know. Um, uh, as far as Joyce, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's an easy comparison because they're both big books and they're sort of, um, Antagony has been identified as, um, uh, or has been called a, a preeminent, maybe the preeminent Spanish novel of the post-war, uh, era. Um, it's, it's not like Ulysses though, that, that is a book I know pretty well. And, um, one, one who reads Ulysses and studies it knows that every, every chapter is very deliberately a, a rhetorical tour de force. Um, it's, it's very programmatic in that way. And especially in its, 
in its attempt to uh, be a modern odyssey uh, through a single day. That's not the, the, the feel or style of, of antagony. Um, you know, in terms of um, being enormously ambitious and rhetorically expansive um, and stylistically bold, it has that in common. Um, Ulysses is a very, very funny book. Um, there is plenty of humor in Antagony, um, uh, from the subtle to the outrageous, but I don't know um, if, if it's a comparison that really stands up that well. Mm. With um, Goethe himself, I know you were telling me before that he didn't have any involvement in this translation, but do you know? are you aware of his other work and how is he seen in current modern-day Spain? Um, I think probably as an old lion. Um, he's been a, a, a noted writer for 50 years or more. I mean, he, he started publishing in the 60s and really... Um, I think this is the book that made his his reputation. He's the brother of a very famous writer, Juan Goitisolo. Um, uh, but uh, his his generation was in the sixties and seventies. That's the time in which the the book is set. Uh, I mean, he published this from I think seventy three to eighty one. In uh, it, it was in four installments, so. Um, He still is publishing. He he has books. Um, he's had books in the last few years coming out still through Anagramma. I, I can't really speak very well to the the current critical perspective on him. I wish I knew that better. Is he an author that you'd like to continue translating? Sure, sure. Um, I found this. I found this to be a, an enormously rewarding, challenging, and rewarding project. So. Um, he's written many books and I would love to investigate more of them. Mm. All right. We have some listener questions for you. Sure. So I'll just read them out to you. So the first question is from cartload at zerk.us. Uh, he says, or she says, what kept Antagony from being translated earlier? Um, were there any previous efforts and are there any books you would recommend to gain insight into this period? Um. I don't know what prevented it from being trans. I mean, translation is a slow process. And um, I think that what, what kickstarted it was the uh, publication in 2011 of the single volume. I think that was kind of a resurrection for the novels themselves. Um, of the four of them, the first was originally published in Mexico because of the censorship under, under Francoism. It couldn't be published in Spain at that time. Um, so having the four the four different novels came out in different editions at different times and so um I, I don't know of other um attempts to translate and publish these but i think that it was that single that that just whopping great big single volume in 2011 that that uh, resuscitated awareness about it mm, interesting. um as far as other books of the period um there's a famous one that is uh and i've read parts of it it's also a big long book um it's called yeah it's called the cypresses believe in god spain on the eve of the civil war and um 
this is a classic of the period, and it was written by Jose Maria Gironella or Gironella. Um, and uh, that, that's based on uh, experiences and accounts of the war, firsthand experiences. Wow. So that, that might be a good companion novel to this one. Sounds good. Although, although it's worth saying that um, this is not a war novel. Uh, the, the war is um, it, Raul, the, the main character, is very young at the end of the war. He's a little boy. Um, and so uh, this is about a Spain in transition away from that and a Spain that is modernizing. And um, because of his family's relative um, security and stability, he's shielded from a lot of that. Um, he goes to Catholic school. He has a pretty, um, comfortable home life. Um, there are servants in the household, not, not at an aristocratic level, but it's, it's a comfortable household. And it's only when he's a, he's a teenager and then starts going to university that the world of politics really starts to intrude on him. And it's a world that his family has tried to keep him away from and out of, um, so when he's arrested for um, uh, attending communist meetings, uh, it's it's a scandal for his family, um, and uh, they try to dissuade him, but um, you know, he continues on that path. So it's it's not a war novel, really. It's it's about the the decades afterwards. Interesting. Okay, we have another question here from Seth over at Waste Mailing List. Um, he asks. How do you feel the reception and legacy of the novel would be changed if it had been originally published in Spain or Catalonia in a single volume um, rather than the separate volumes it was originally in Mexico? Um, well, the, the censorship would have prevented that. It's, it's frankly critical of the, of, the, um, of the regime under which it was written. Um, I don't know that it could have been um, if it had been published, I don't know, underground or clandestinely um, there, there, you know, the author could have um, suffered further persecution for that. Um, Goiti Solo was, I understand, persuaded to publish it in, in installments. He wrote it as a single work and that's why it's now published that way. It's conceived of as a single novel. So the sections were, um editorial choices to be able to bring the book out um more conveniently um it's it's very expensive to publish and to sell a massive uh single volume so uh hard to say uh, um when you have a book that big um is it going to get a return on its investment mm. um so I, I don't know that's not a great answer but but um i think the reputation uh of the book grew over time that's my sense of it is that with the installments uh with the with the separate sections it, it its eminence grew interesting okay got another couple of listener questions for you with the Goethe's Hollow Brothers, the three of them, have you read any of their other works? 
Um, I have not. Is he? Yes, I've got one of the of one of one Gwetisolo's books on my shelf that I also haven't read yet, but it's out through Dalky, so I will get to that at some point. Andre from the Untranslated asks, "Who is your favorite writer from each of these countries? Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, Chile, and Cuba?" Um, my answers are probably going to be terribly um, <laughs> unadventurous or, or predictable, but uh, I mean, I can I can name a few from Mexico. Uh, Carlos Fuentes, who I've read some of and, and translated one of his books. Um, Alvaro Enrique, um, I've also read and translated some of his work. Uh, Julian Herbert is um, uh, a prominent writer at the moment. Uh, Yuri Herrera, I really like his um, novels that I've read. I've read three of them, translated by Lisa Dillman. And... Um, those are those are really good short novels. Uh, one is called Kingdom Cons, another is called uh, Signs Preceding the End of the World, and the other that I've read is The Transmigration of Bodies. Uh, they're short, very simple, clear style, enigmatic, um, kind of allegorical. Really, really good. Okay. Um, last question for you over here. Oh, I would also mention Octavio Paz. Sorry, I should I should definitely not neglect to mention them <laughs> yes are there any particular sociolinguistic challenges in translating a spanish language novel that is set in catalonia that question come from matthias friedrich who's also a translator um definitely uh goiti solo was raised in catalonia uh in a catalan speaking family but chose to write in spanish um um and and i think the reasons are complex um I think there was more chance of uh, being published um, during Franco's time. Catalan was was suppressed and censored. Uh, but in the novel, there there is um, a fair amount of uh, Barcelonese in, in which the Catalan and the Spanish mingle a bit. And you do find uh, words, you find idioms, expressions that don't pop up conveniently in the dictionary. Um, Sometimes that led me to uh, consulting with my wife or friends in Barcelona. There, um, there are some passages during the, the historical paragraphs in the novel in which he brings in some medieval Catalan, some, some old ballads from the Middle Ages. So that was, that was challenging. Um, so yeah, like, like any, any novel any book, any poems that you read, there's going to be that vocal influence, which makes it challenging and, and forces you to be resourceful uh, from the dictionary to the thesaurus to doing some digging around online or in whatever books you have on hand. Mm. All right. I want to ask you, if we have an endless budget and endless time, do you have a dream project as a translator? The song of Martin Fierro, the famous gaucho, poem from Argentina. Um, I've read enough of that to think that I'd love to try to tackle that. Um, and uh, that, so that's one that's been, that's been kicking around in my mind for years. Um, and uh, it, it would be fun to also try to, you know, uh, turn, turn the story in poetry uh into a, a kind of a, a modern version or a novel form as well you know doing a um sort of a, a 
trans creation, I think is the term that's being thrown around these days to, to do, do a straight translation, but also do a, a creative adaptation of it. That would be a lot of fun. Wow. Okay. That sounds very cool. Um, with Spanish, obviously a lot of the world speaks Spanish. Um, are there some writers in countries that are all over South America and Europe? Um, are there some writers you'd like to see in English? Yeah. Uh, there's one writer from Spain uh, named Fernando Aramburu. And he's been translated a bit, but he's he's a very productive writer with many, many books, uh, novels and short stories. Um, I think that uh, it would be great to see more of him in English. Um, I've touched on a little bit of uh, the Spanish novelist Alvaro Pombo, and he's he's had a few translations published in English, but I know he has many more books. Um Several years ago, one of the books I did for Dalkey uh, was a translation of a novel by the Argentine writer Juan Filloy. Um, and uh, the novel that I worked on uh, is called Caterva, and that's um, that's one of his best known novels, but uh, he wrote he wrote dozens of novels, um, more than 50, and uh, he was, uh, he was very well known during his lifetime um, in Argentina. And uh, so he's, he's except for the one that I did and another one called um, Opa Loop by translated by Lisa Dillman. There's a whole vast ovure by Juan Filloy that remains untranslated. I think when he, um, when, when he passed away um, around the turn of the 21st century, there was still something like 20 novels he'd written, which remained unpublished in Argentina. So, so he's a really interesting idiosyncratic writer. I'd love to do more with him. Mm, sounds really interesting. Okay. All right. What are you working on at the moment? Um, I've been uh, working on writing by a couple different writers. Um, there's a very nice gentleman from Venezuela whose name is Pedro Plaza Salvati. Um, and uh, he spent a few years living in New York City and that inspired him to write a couple books. And I translated one of them. Um, it's called um, Lo que me dijo Joan Didion, What Joan Didion Told Me. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a bunch of um, chronicles of life in New York City seen through the eyes of... Uh, uh, of a visitor from Venezuela. Um, and uh, so they're standalone chapters that are sometimes literary essays, sometimes travelogues, uh, pondering life in the big city. Uh, that won uh, an important award in Venezuela. And so um, I've translated that and Pedro and I are uh, hoping that uh, some, some kind uh, editors will see fit to bring it out in English. And I'm also working on a novel, uh, a novel that he wrote as a follow-up to that, um, which is also set, it's set in New York City and in Caracas, and it's called um, Last Stop Broadway Lafayette. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty hefty novel. And uh, I'm currently working on that. And then I've also been working with 
the writer from uh, the Barcelona area, from a city called Terrassa, which is a suburb of, uh, of Barcelona. Uh, his name's Carlos Robles Lucena. And a few years ago, I, I translated a book of really clever short stories by him. Um, and uh, it's called Don't Ask for Gagarin. Uh, and the references to Yuri Gagarin, the uh, the famous cosmonaut, Russian cosmonaut. Um, and then uh, he has just recently come out with a, a novel called Cervantes Park, which is about a literary amusement park. Um, and uh, so um, I'm, uh, I'm starting to work on that as well. Okay. And with these works, are they things that you actively seek out or is someone asking you to do these works um they it comes about in different ways i mean mm. sometimes it comes from a conversation with an editor um sometimes it's a recommendation um like with uh i mean sometimes pe- you you meet someone a friend of a friend you make the sort of natural connection that you do socializing uh sometimes it is actively seeking sometimes it's because it's a book that you're reading and and uh you think wouldn't it be nice to work on that um with with the fellow i just mentioned with carlos robles lucena um i was asking a friend in barcelona you know what are some of the best short stories you've read from local writers recently and he said oh you've got to read the story by this friend of mine and sure enough it was good and it it ended it ended the title story from that collection ended up getting chosen for uh dalkey's best european fiction 2017 um and then i said well uh, what about the rest of the book so um that's that's another book that we'd uh, we'd like to find a home for uh mm. it's, so, so yeah i mean it, it comes about in different ways okay all right i'm gonna ask you about your gateway books what were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you oh there's too many to name as usual um I'm, uh, I've got a long list here. I mean, I was, I was lucky as a high school student to have an outstanding uh, teacher of literature and uh, he was steeped in the classics. And so, you know, when I was 16 and 17, uh, reading translations of Homer, reading the divine comedy, um, uh, reading, uh, you know, the Oresteia and, um, uh, and Chaucer as well, uh, James Joyce. Um, so that that I was able to experience before going to college. Um, I love um, in college. I loved reading Ovid's Metamorphoses and some of the Roman satires and epistles. D. H. Lawrence. I had a long uh, uh, fondness for Mark Twain from the time I was a kid. Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. Uh, the Prince and the Pauper, just classic novels. Uh, in college, reading Aldous Huxley, not just Brave New World, but like The Devils of Loudon, uh, essays in his collection Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Uh, that led me to read Lauren Isley, uh, The Great Naturalist. So I read The Immense Journey and The Night Country. Um, in, you know, after that, in more recent years, um, reading as much as I could of Peter Matheson, both his fiction and nonfiction. So I love The Snow Leopard a lot. That's a book I've I've returned to a number of times, as well as his uh, book on Africa, The Tree Where Man Was Born. Uh, I love the novels of Michael Ondaatje, 
the Sri Lankan Canadian writer, um, the American writer John McPhee has been a real inspiration um, because he's such a, he's a writer of such precision, but also um, he's he's got um, a style that verges on the lyrical. Um, uh, poetry, uh, Gary Snyder, great poet of California and the American West. Uh, also Robinson Jeffers, I should mention him. He's an old favorite, um, terribly unpopular um, because of his politics, but he's one of the great poets of the West Coast of, of North America. So I always return to him and uh, uh, the list goes on. <laughs> yes. Um what books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to? Yeah, um, it's always fun to talk about recent reading. Um, let's see, I'm reading London Fields by Martin Amos, and that's mm -hmm. a book, that's a novel from the 80s, and I've just started that uh, um, last month, so I'm really enjoying that. What, what a brilliant novel that is. Um, another book of London, um, the, the novel Downriver by Ian Sinclair, um i'm reading um a book called the five which is about the um the victims of jack the ripper the sort of canonical victims that's by an historical writer Haley rubenhold that's a brilliant book i just finished reading uh, a book by gary snyder called the great claude um which is um uh essays and meditations on buddhist themes um i'm reading uh Neurotribes by Steve Silberman, which is a, a really interesting history of uh, studies and understanding of autism. Uh, and I'm also reading a book called um, Literary Translations and the Making of Originals uh, by Karen Emmerich, a brilliant study of, of translation theory. And that was recommended to me by Lisa Dillman, uh, whom I mentioned a few minutes ago. So those are some in the in the mountainous <laughs> to be read pile, but th those are I'm actively reading those right now. So, I'm very interested in the Neurotribes book because I work a lot with people on the spectrum. So I think I might have to mm -hmm. go pick that up. Uh, yeah, it's it's um it's amazing. It's it's uh, the the research is um, impressive. The style is very engaging. Uh, each chapter deals with um, separate time period or, or uh, historical anecdotes. He starts in um, uh, 18th century London with the scientist Henry Cavendish. Um, and then he jumps up to uh, the modern day Bay Area, San Francisco, uh, and a family learning to uh, help their autistic son. Uh, and then he goes back and studies uh, or discusses the um, Hans Asperger and the development of studies in uh, in autism and and what's you know many people have called Asperger syndrome. So mm. yeah, it's it's great. Okay, very cool. One other thing I wanted to ask you about is Downriver is something that I've had on my list of things to read for I don't know how long. But how are you finding that? Um, it's. Um, it's dense. It's densely written. It's, it's beautiful. It's impressive. It's if you're if you're someone who tries to write it all and you read it, it's immediately going to make you jealous. It's just brilliant. Um, the, the the prose is very intricately woven, um, and um, I uh, 
I, I spent a semester in London as a student many years ago in 1986. And um, uh, it's funny, when I, when I got there in our student orientation, they warned us to stay out of East London because we'd, we'd get into dangerous trouble there. And so uh, I, I took them at their word. But that novel, those stories, those chapters are set in uh, in East London and uh, makes me wish I had actually gone and explored that part of the city. Um, so I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's a okay. brilliant book. He's a great writer. Awesome. I think he's got a new book coming out next year as well. Uh, I picked up his, um, his, one of his recent books called the gold machine, uh, about his travels in South America, but it's, it's on the to be read list. Mm. Um, and I've, he's, he's also, um, done a bunch of documentaries, uh, going around London and those have been great to use in the classroom to introduce my students to um, like when we're doing William Blake po poems by Blake, Ian Sinclair has some great um, uh, discussions of Blake and Blake's radicalism and what it was like to be alive in those times when it was so, so dangerous to be a dissenter. Um, so he's a great guide to London. I really enjoy uh, his work. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Brendan Riley. Do you have a friend who has everything and runs a human rights abusing regime and you can't work out what to get them for Christmas? Why not try getting them sports washing? Guaranteed to make your regime at least 50% more palatable. Use promo code BRIBEFIFA to get your next sporting event for 50% off. Go to sportswashing.com. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Brendan's Desert Island Books. I was tempted to, you know, I was thinking this over and again, it's always an impossible list and I'm not a great one to say this favorite above, you know, which one's better than that. So part of me wants to say, well, it's all the great books I haven't read yet, but that's kind of a cop out. So, I mean, collected works of Shakespeare, it's, it's inexhaustible. Um, I always love the metamorphoses because that's your you know it's a book of transformations um and so it, it has that same inexhaustible feeling um moby dick uh, uh was a book that i loved in college and um it, it was it was i remember approaching it uh and and thinking this is a book i'm supposed to read i've wanted to read this for years and i'm finally ready to read it as a senior in college and absolutely loving it just, just plowing through it. And that's a book I really would love to get to know better because I've read other books by Melville over the years. Uh, I love Gary Snyder's uh, book of poems called Mountains and Rivers Without End. I'd say collected poems of Yeats and collected fictions of Borges. If collections count, right? I mean, those yeah, are just like funny. multiple books or titles <laughs> under one cover, but... but yeah. uh, and then, you know, on the weirder end, uh, maybe... William Burroughs' Cities of the Red Knight trilogy. Um, I found that those three books to be the most um, most memorable or enjoyable of Burroughs. Um, and then uh, some of the novels of William Faulkner, like Absalom, Absalom, or, or Light in August. Um, I, I could take my pick of Dickens. Um, I mean, I love A Tale of Two Cities and, and Our Mutual Friend. Those are probably the Dickens novels that I know best. So those are a few. Brilliant. Okay. That sounds pretty good. 
All right. Well, we should probably wrap it up. Um, okay. I'll let you get back to your evening in San Diego. But before we go, do you want to tell us where we can find you online and where we can go and get Antagony? Um, so Antagony is published by Dalkey Archive Press and um, Deep Vellum in in uh, Dallas. So you can uh, you can order it from the Dalkey Archive website. It's also available on Amazon. Um, and that's probably the quickest and easiest way to get it. Um, you can order it from Barnes and Noble or any of the big online booksellers. Um, at the moment, I'm on Twitter for as long as that lasts. And, um, but I also have um, I have a a, a very modest uh, web uh, blog, and um, it's just uh, Brendan Riley 2020 at WordPress.com. And uh, if I have a new translation or book review, I usually throw something up there, but um, I, I try to keep it active. So um, that's as far as like my own presence on the web. That's that's what I have right now. I hope to improve it. I see some really great writer uh, and translator websites out there, um, but uh, that's a, another work in progress. Brilliant. All right. I'll let you go, but thank you so much for chatting and yeah, wish you lots of luck with Antagony and also your next translations. Thank you. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk. It's been a pleasure. Thanks once again to Brendan Riley. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by heading over to Patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. This is the last regular episode of 2022, but we'll be back with more great content in 2023. Bye for now.